you have the gay man teaching the cis women how to do femininity so that it will be read as natural. It's like, you Mm -hmm. make me feel like a natural woman, you know? Welcome to the Feminist Prison, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. I'm Adrian Daub. I'm Laura Good. What's going on? Right now? Right now. Well, uh, we haven't been doing a whole lot of current events shows, which is kind of a nice break. So instead, we're looking at the current events of the late 90s, which in this particular instance also includes the year 2000. Yes. We will be talking today to the iconic Susan Stryker about a film she suggested. I think it's important to know. Oh, yeah. Some of the interviews that you'll hear are films that like we poked a friend and said, do you want to watch this? This was Susan's choice and we could not have been more delighted. I could not have been more delighted by that. It's true. And to give our listeners a sense as to why we were delighted and why we were maybe also a little bit surprised. Um, although I think after talking to Susan for about half an hour about this film, it made all the sense in the world. But, totally. you know, Susan Stryker is best known for being one of the great historians of LGBT America, is known, for instance, for a wonderful book called Gay by the Bay, History of Queer Culture in the San Francisco Bay Area, which I assign to my students every year for a class. She wrote the Transgender Studies Reader. She's the author of a 2008 transgender history and has, of course, also made films, mm-hmm. not, not unimportantly. For instance, Screaming Queens, sort of the film about the riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Disclosure, Trans Lives on Scream, which is kind of the celluloid closet for trans Americans. And most recently, The Lady and the Dale, which is on HBO now. Yes. In fact, it's on HBO now, now, about a truly kind of amazing piece of history that I knew nothing about. And I started watching it and it was very much sucked in. It's about car manufacturing, which I'm not particularly interested in, and trans people, which I'm very interested in. And it turns out it's as good as anything that she does. So... There were so many reasons I was psyched to talk about Miss Congeniality. It's such a cheesy film, but I really enjoyed kind of like taking it seriously and plumbing it for meaning with such an august intellectual as Susan. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that's been the fun of this season for me, at least. As I said, initially, I was like, oh, wow, not not the movie I thought Susan would pick. But five minutes in, I was like, yep, this is kind of a perfect fit. And I wouldn't have wanted to talk to anyone else about miscongeniality. So what else do we have to look forward to this season, Adrian? Well, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but next week we have Ingu Kang talking us through We Are the Best, which is a film that you and I think hadn't seen before and discovered Mm -hmm. thanks to Ingu. I've mentioned before and want to mention again, is available to watch in full for free on YouTube. So we encourage our listeners who have not seen... I'm going to assume that most of our listenership has seen Miss Congeniality, but if you haven't seen We Are the Best, please access it and uh, have some laughs for yourself. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And, you know, one that I was very excited that Ingu brought into our lives. Then the week after that, is that our Dracula week? I think it might be. I know we have it coming up somewhere. Don't fact check us too hard on the order of the episodes here. But yeah, we definitely have some um, some blood sucking ahead. Yeah, so we're going to be talking to Merve Emery 
about Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, there was something I was meaning to tell you after our decapressants in the de retrospective from our last two weeks. I realized that I had said on air that Titanic is the only James Cameron film that I have seen in full. And I realized... Ah. That was a crucial error on my part, and I'm wholly responsible for it. There's another very important film that I have seen many times called True Lies. And uh, I think that's an important thing to remember in the James Cameron canon. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yes. uh, Starring our former governor. Yes. There's that scene in the beginning that's really my favorite where he's like fighting his way out of the castle in the like whole opening sequence. And there's like some guy that he's trying to outsmart and like Arnold just like, you know, says something and the subtitle just says perfect Arabic. Just perfect Arabic. (laughs) I remember that scene. That's pretty great. It's like, yeah, why act if you have subtitles to do it for you? A really Cameronian uh, flourish. I thought that was. (laughs) Anyway, I was like, I was out walking the other day and I was like, true lie. I have to tell Adrian about true lie. Well, I'm glad. I was I was surprised when you said that you'd only seen seen one. Uh, I was like, they're pretty inescapable. So. They are pretty inescapable, and I've seen like big chunks on like TBS at 3 p.m. of a lot of them. But I think that True Lies and Titanic are the only ones I have seen in totem. Um, in totem, that's not an actual phrase. That that's fake no, Latin. No. In in full, totally, I have seen those. <laughs> Well, I have also not seen Miss Congeniality 2. So, you I know. think I have seen Miss Congeniality 2. I'm remembering with some dismay. Smart. It's good research. Uh, <laughs> but as you peruse the following conversation with Susan Stryker, please keep in mind that I, when it comes to Miss Congeniality, I'm quite the babe in the woods. I wander into it like a child, wandering <laughs> to the middle of a movie. Well, not this particular movie. I saw this one from the beginning, but I do not know what happens to mm-hmm. Gracie, is her name? I can't, yes. I can't remember if that's her real name or her stage name, but Sandra Bullock's character. Yeah, I, I don't know what happens to her after this. And you may never know, you know? And and I love your introducing the premise that I watched Miss Congeniality, you know, for research in the year 2000, because I, I think that's exactly what I was doing. It's, it's fantastic. I've been researching this season that we're doing for 25 years, you know? And And I'm glad to finally have reached this culmination of all of that research. Well, should we take it to the bridge and... Let's take it to the bridge. Enjoy our conversation with Susan Stryker about the one of two, the fabulous Miss Congeniality. (laughs) The only first Miss Congeniality that there is. Thank you for joining us. We're just so incredibly thrilled to have such a capacity and such an expert in so many fields on our podcast, and we couldn't think of any better way to celebrate that than to talk about a Sandra Bullock vehicle from the year 2000. I, I feel like it's the obvious step, right? I think so. You know, so I really appreciated you asking me the question. It was kind of like the icebreaker question of like, it's like, oh, like, what's a chick flick movie? And the thing that just popped into my head was miscongeniality. I think because I'll confess that it's not a genre that I feel like I am deeply familiar with or have made a priority in my own research. And so it was just like, 
oh, like, what have I actually seen that I actually liked? I immediately thought of Legally Blonde, but I thought that was just like too low-hanging fruit. I mean, I thought, oh, what else? And I thought Miss Congeniality. And partly because I think, I mean, Sandra Bullock has such an interesting way of doing gender, like being able to perform a kind of high femme Hollywood, you know, womanness, And at the same time, it's like there's a, tomboyish quality there's a sense of femininity as a kind of drag that she can totally do she can rock that like cishet femininity look but there's something in her performance that sort of suggests like she realizes there's an ironic gap there yeah so smart yeah she's become you know such a hollywood big budget box office popcorn movie kind of star that i think it's nice to see her in a sort of lower budget, in some ways, kind of middle brow sort of entertainment, where it's like she gets to be comic. It's like she is a great comic. She's funny. She's funny as hell. You know, and then watching it again last night, it's like, yeah, of course, like there's some transphobic humor in it. There's some body shaming. There's like a general low level of, you know, yuck, yuck, bro kind of humor in it. And yet it's a movie that's a Sandra Bullock vehicle. It's like it highlights relationships between women. There's like a critique of the beauty culture. There's so much going on in that film that is actually if not exactly feminist, at least there's a critique of womanhood and femininity in it in a way that like critiques the limitations that it can place on people and that you're seeing the Sandra Bullock character strain against some of those limitations that conventional Mm -hmm. femininity puts on her life. The way that she doesn't quite fit into it is like the nerdy brainiac who I think it's supposed to be kind of a tomboy character, but like it's Hollywood butch. And so AKA femme, but you know, like really interesting gender representation in the film and watching it again, knowing that we were going to talk about it on a podcast about feminist scholarship. There were these moments as you're like, Oh, like this was made in 2000. It probably got written in 1998 by somebody who read gender trouble in 1996. And so there is this way that it really was about gender performativity as this unironic miming of these sort of like very queer and campy notions of gender it was like drag queen performed as like cis naturalness mm-hmm, you know, like, mm-hmm. like by somebody who had been wrapping their heads around butler's gender performativity theory and like the michael kane character in that film is like the gay pageant person it's like you have the gay man teaching the cis women how to do femininity mm-hmm. so that it will be read as natural it's like you Mm -hmm. make me feel like a natural woman you know yes you know i mean it's just it was straight up butler and then the other part that i thought oh somebody's been reading their queer theory there was a very eve sedgwick moment between the gay man and the straight man the love interest man and the gay surrogate father figure who are talking with each other about the woman who is sandra bullock who have been shaped by Michael Caine's gay sensibility of what femininity is. 
to become the object that mediates the relationship between the gay man and the straight man. So it's just like, it's like between men. Woman is like the thing between men. Right, which famously she was unable to do earlier in the movie, right, where Bernie Hudson from Ghostbusters is first put in a dress because that's the thing that comes most obviously to the FBI agents before they think that they could maybe put, you know, the A-list star Sandra Bullock in a dress for this undercover role. So the year 2000 to me was sort of the heyday for like glamorous, very traditionally feminine actresses kind of putting on glasses and then being like ugly or the nerd or whatever, right? Like Rachel Lee Cook and she's all that, I think is the classic case of this. And initially we both thought, oh, wow, you know, Sandra Bullock is kind of doing the same thing. But actually, as you're pointing out, it's quite possible that in her leading roles of the 90s, she never wore a dress, right? I think that, you know, if you think of the net, if you think of speed, speed if you think of speed two, mm -hmm. cruise control, which I do a lot. Important film in the canon. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Willem Dafoe, I think. Yeah. Um, it's on a boat. It almost might be that there's actually, you know, this was sort of the first generation also of Hollywood actresses that could get away with a kind of a more nuanced performance of femininity, with the femininity that didn't involve ballroom gowns, and now suddenly she was in one, right? So it almost seems like a movie that couldn't have been made, I mean, there's the Judith Butler aspect, but it also couldn't have been made in 1990 simply because there wouldn't have been, I think, Maybe Linda Hamilton, but would there have really been a Hollywood actress? Sigourney Weaver, you know, it's like another one of those, you know, I think of, think of and the alien, you know, quadrilogy. She's very, she's very uh, dolled up in, in Ghostbusters. Um, right. But also, I think because you're seeing her against the Ripley, you know, um, right. meta text, it's like that you do see something about that yeah, as like true. a comedic exaggeration of a certain kind of femininity. The things that I think think about in the the 90s it's like well so like there's like the cindy crawford and katie lang you know barbershop shaving scene on the cover of vanity fair right or you know you've got ellen degeneres you know making her break out in the 90s i was thinking while watching the film again last night about the movie bound yes. uh, by the wachowskis yes. and it's yes. like it was this other thing of like gina Gershon as the butch who like if you saw her walking down the street this would be them but it's like coded in Hollywood language right. it's like you clearly see her positioned as the masculine mm -hmm. since I thought we might wind up talking about miscongeniality on my lunch break today I like did a little internet journalism and Sandra Bullock was on the Ellen DeGeneres show talking oh about miscongeniality and the gay scriptwriter for miscongeniality has publicly said in some interview that he got the idea for the script while watching Ellen DeGeneres not know how to walk in a dress at an awards show. Wow. That is a rich detail. Yeah, I thought that one was pretty good. So, wow. Um, it's the story of, what's her name? Grace Hart. Important to note that her. Gracie Lou Freebush. Her pageant name becomes Gracie Lou Freebush, is just like a discussion jumping off point that I'm excited about. But yes, Gracie Hart is her name name. She's a crack FBI agent who is coded. I kind of like this. She's all about the job and her lack of 
traditional femininity and her kind of workaholism are kind of indistinguishable in the beginning. Like she has no discernible personal life, which is mm -hmm. part of having no discernible gender, which I think is really interesting, right? She's klutzy and abrasive and falls over stuff all the time in her apartment. And she has a punching bag that's hanging by her bed. And it's interesting that it's both coded as like you know, lack of a life and a lack of a gendered life. Those two things, the, the movie completely conflates in the beginning. It's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you have this trope of like the detective who only works for their job, right? And then you have the Kate Hudson doesn't have her life together and she needs Matthew McConaughey to make her life complete. And it's both of those things kind of smushed together. Like you don't know which one you're watching. And I, I thought that was pretty neat. So many confused messages about like professional expectations for women in this era in which I came of age. I did a little research on like what other movies came out around this time. And there were so many sexually confused ones. Uh, American Psycho, Aaron Brockovich, High Fidelity, which is low-key, like so misogynistic, what women want, which I desperately hope some August gender scholar wants to talk about with us. Bring It On, Coyote Ugly, American Beauty, The Talented Mr. Ripley, another like queer sleeper hit, all kinds of weird ass stuff coming out around this time. And like one thing that really struck me as I was rewatching last night and like thoroughly enjoying rewatching, praising Susan Stryker's name for like giving me this assignment. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, this is a classic Hollywood movie in that it is it is structured in a very hero's journey way, you know, like there's this ordinary world. In this case, it's Gracie Hart's sort of like professional life, which renders her sexless because she's so frumpy as an FBI agent and so committed. And then she has to venture outward into this extraordinary world and like find allies and foes and like vanquish the extraordinary world in order to return to her ordinary world of the FBI. But the part where I got so tripped up as I was trying to watch this movie last night that I would love to dive into with both of you is like, I was like, how do they get to the setup where she needs to be in a beauty pageant as an FBI task? Adrian, I saw this in your notes, like the citizen threatens the Miss United States pageant. But like, what did you guys think of this setup, the leap into the beauty pageant? How plausible did that seem to you or how well did you follow it, I guess? I kept thinking about Hitchcock movies and the idea of the MacGuffin. There just needed to be yes. some device yeah. that like gets yeah. you into the setup. And so I did think there was an interesting subtext there with like this mad bomber, you know, the citizen mm -hmm. uh, being kind of a Unabomber like character. Yeah. And that, you know, if you know the backstory on the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, was that mm -hmm. his name, I believe, right? That he had been a math professor at UC Berkeley. Right. Who was trying to transition genders, was like, had gender dysphoria, was involved with, you know, psychiatric care. And they basically said, well, you'd be throwing away your career as a Berkeley professor if you did that. And, you know, he didn't transition, which then becomes elaborated as this kind of paranoia. It's like, well, if I can't have the body tech that I want, then right. technology is bad. Wow. I'm going to kill people, you know. And so there's this trans angle in that psycho killer story. And then to have the Candace Bergen character as like bad mommy with like twisted relationship with perhaps incestuous relationship with son. It's just like uh, a whole nasty Buffalo Bill psycho killer, wheezy, icky vibe with the trans angle. And it was very much like right there in the 
script, I think. Yeah. I also got the Unabomber vibes. What's interesting is that it's one of these sort of 90s placeholders in that not only do they deliberately leave open what the citizen might want to do with the Miss America pageant, but rather they don't even know what connects the targets of this killer. In some way, the MacGuffin nature of this whole thing is kind of winkingly underscored and that they're like we don't know who this person is we don't know the zodiac yeah it's like we don't know why they pick the people they pick and you know you just have to stop them and i think that part of it is right like later on grace suspects that it might be an animal rights activist right so there's like there's an extreme kind of of an absence at the heart of her assignment which is interesting because of course the one thing that doesn't seem to motivate the citizen is to destroy the sex gender system if i were to think of like a place to like tear down the Miss America pageant, it would have something to do with gender. It's very unclear that that's what's going on here, right? Right. Well, the thing is, so the citizen character in the film is just in the background and actually has no connection to the violence right. at the pageant. It's like right. you have the Candace Bergen character imitating in a copycat right. way this mad bomber character out there in the world. And her her thing really is about willing to enact the kind of lethal violence yeah. to cure the ongoing sort of spectacularization of conventional this het femininity, you know, as spectacle. And so the idea of instrumentalizing the psycho killer for a different kind of wounded attachment to womanhood on the part of somebody who hates feminism. Ooh, that was a good one. I was in this rewatch really struck by how great I thought the Candace Bergen casting was, both because she is so culturally identifiable as a former model. I saw on her Wikipedia page, she's a former homecoming queen. So she exists in the cultural imagination as kind of this avatar of the kind of femininity that's represented in the beauty pageant. But she also has the dynamism as an actress to be a really compelling and convincing villain. Spoiler alert, you know, for anybody who missed this movie in the year 2000. <laughs> um, but I thought she was so great. That William Shatner, uh, it yes! was like early in William Shatner's that act of his career, you know, that he was yes. you know, such the macho man, Captain Kirk character in Star Trek. But with a kind of cheesy campiness to it played straight totally. and later in his career it's like he like in all of the like police procedural kinds of things he was in for a while but i think this congeniality if i'm remembering correctly it was one of the first times that we see william shatner being self-mocking of his screen persona and it's kind of like, yeah, he knows exactly how much of a carpet chewer he is, you know, a scenery muncher <laughs> and playing it up. And this, I thought, really hilarious way. And I thought Michael Caine as the... Svengali. Yeah, well, playing a gay character, you know, oh, yeah. with a lot of panache and aplomb. Yeah, so we should say that Bullock is surrounded sort of, yeah, by these by these very interesting kind of oldies, right? So, I mean, there's also Benjamin Bratt, other Mr. 90s, supreme 90s, 90s man, I would say. But then there's Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters. There's Michael Caine as sort of the Henry Higgins character. There's Candice Bergen. And yeah, and then William Shatner. There's something interesting also generationally going on here, right? That like, she's kind of undergoing a second adolescence in some way, right? She's being taught how to, how to act gender by a bunch of elders such that she can attract the boy who's been kind of equally adolescent around her but society lets him do it like the question is like when will he start understanding that what michael kane 
William Shatner and the rest of them are producing is an object that he can then desire. Brad takes forever to get there too. One thing, and I wonder if you two agree with this, compared to sort of the kind of farce that it sometimes tries to be, sort of a some like it hot kind of thing, it's surprisingly unhorny. I don't know how else to put this, but like desire enters into the story very, very late and the inevitable romance between Benjamin Bratt and Sandra Bullock, precisely because we know it has to come, is extremely attenuated, I would say. They don't have a big heart to heart. It's clear that it's going to happen. But because of that, the movie's like, yeah, yeah, you get all that. That's fine. They're obviously going to be ending up together. They're two attractive people of approximately the same age. It's ultimately not a movie that either leers a lot or desires a lot. Am I wrong about that? It's not a rom-com, you know? Yeah. It's like when you said chick flick, I thought, hmm. Rom-com? No, no. Like they didn't say rom-com. They said chick flick. And I thought, yeah, this congeniality is like yeah. definitely a chick flick. But it's like the genre does not move its audience to imagine itself in the place of the heterosexual couple on the screen. If yeah. anything, the comedy of it is about a winking sort of knowingness about the constructedness of heterosexuality and of binary gender roles that Bullock plays perfectly, I would say, leading to the kind of what you're talking about there of like it having no desire is almost like watch Benjamin Bratt and Sandra Bullock do that like Hollywood, you know, lover's lip lock at the end where they're in this embrace and they're lit perfectly. And well, you just knew that's where it was going to wind up. Not that there's any feeling in it. It's like, okay, now we're going to like, we're going to produce the form. We're going to like meet the generic expectation, but it's, it's done with a kind of ironic knowingness about it's fabrication. It's like you're not intended to believe it, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. The comedy is of the, well, we all know that we're doing drag with each other at some level. Well, I mean, I think that it's fascinating. I had totally forgotten that there is something that comes after that, right? Which is the most romantic gesture and kind of most rom-com moment of the entire film for me is right after they think lock lips, which is when the other contestants sort of stage a ceremony for her as being Miss Congeniality. That's kind of the, you know, she's surprised by it. She can't contain her emotions. It's it's sisterhood that kind of is presented as the ultimate romantic gesture. And I thought that was, I was like, wow, props to you movie. That's a nice way to play with form. Yeah, no, I agree. That's really well said. I was thinking... Susan, you mentioned police procedurals as you were talking about William Shatner. And I was thinking that this movie, too, is a police procedural, you know, like it's a comedy, but it is a story about an FBI investigation. And I think there's some interesting racial dynamics at play in the sort of like 90s white feminism of this movie, too. Like I was really struck when Gracie Lou Freebush got up and gave her... (laughs) Love that name. Um, it's never not going to be It's good. never not going to be good, but I don't think the writers of it were appreciating it in the way that we're appreciating it. Anyway, maybe they were. She gets up and she gives her sort of pre-canned pageant answer of like, what's your dream? I don't remember what the question is, but it's something to the effect of like, what's your dream for a better world? And the FBI oh, agents, yeah. her answer is harsher punishments for parole violators. <laughs> And world peace. And world peace. And world peace. Yeah, yeah. And like, but yeah. I was like, this is what passed for feminism in 1999, I guess. Was it supposed to be ironic, you know? Right. I don't know. I saw the moment 
where Gracie says how she would make a better world was through harsher punishment for parole violators was like her character's lack of having a personal life. It's all about, she's completely identified with her job. It's Mm -hmm. a certain caricature of what, you know, the FBI agent would say and that it's supposed to be funny. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's supposed to be funny that she says that instead of world peace. And then it goes flat completely and and world peace part of the wink wink nudge nudge knowingness of the way that gender works in the film when you were talking about white feminism it's like the thing that i was also noticing in the film is how clearly it was like this politics of um, multicultural diversity and minority inclusion you know like you've got the Asian contestant, the African-American contestant, you've got the Puerto Rican contestant. It's like you've got everybody plays their racially minoritized role Mm -hmm. in the film. And Mm -hmm. so how is it that, well, I don't know where I want to go with that. Just I was very aware of the tokenizing and minoritizing and pigeonholing of putting everybody in a, a signposted position where they would say their thing that was actually racially stereotypical but under the guise of inclusion except remember that moment where like the the miss new york who was you know new yorican it's like when she doesn't make the top 10 and she's like being taken off the stage she like comes out as a dyke and she's like screaming you know at the audience about like if i can make it this far you can make it this far too sister you know it's like they just steal a little bit of depth in that two seconds of screen time that they're given to speak. Yeah. One moment where I think that they are really, really explicit in how they connect kind of, well, both the military industrial complex and sort of law enforcement complex with gender is in the makeover scene, right? Which is, it's basically is in an airplane hangar. It's like yes. set to like snare drums. It's like the scene in Top Gun where like Tom yes. Cruise is like coming out, you know, to get into the fighter jet and it's just like you're seeing that same slow motion walk surrounded by the cadre of support people and the idea of the heterosexually femininely normative woman as product of military industrial society like that there is something that is weaponized about it there is a state formation that is happening there there is like a certain representative of what count i mean like the idea of linking normative femininity to a state project that is a high-tech militarized state project i thought was actually brilliant and the Mm -hmm. little connection i thought of there besides going like oh clearly they're citing top gun in this moment right now was the scene in uh, Battle of Algiers where, you know, you have the female terrorists, right? It's like, how is it that the female terrorists like plant their bombs? It's because they're, you know, North African Muslim women who are imitating Western notions of womanhood in ways that it allows them to circulate without surveillance, you know, so that they can go into the restaurants and clubs and places and leave Absolutely. leave their handbag you know by their chair and walk oh, out yeah. and the place blows up and it's like that sense of yeah the the imperceptibility of a political agenda 
precisely because it is masked in a kind of normativity that disappears into the background. And right. I thought what was brilliant in that makeover scene was that it's like it shows you the, you know, the material apparatus that produces that figure, you know, as normative and imperceptible as constructed. There's a funny thing, right? Like in the beginning, her gender and her job are sort of positioned as in some way at loggerheads. So they're opposed to one another, right? Part of the joke is that it seems that the FBI just doesn't have that many women in it. And the other one is on maternity leave, right? So that's, and so they're stuck with grace. But the funny thing is, of course, that in the end, her gender performance becomes her job. Right. Like it's busy, like, you know, perform femininity for America. Right. Like go into this hangar and perform femininity for America. The cross-dressing cop or the spy who like goes in drag to like assassinate right. a political rival, you know, mm -hmm. it's like being able to do femininity as a state project. I wanted to talk a little about the Michael Caine character, which we touched on just briefly. I want to say his character's name is Victor, if I'm remembering correctly. Because I thought that the development of that character was very emblematic of how comfortable the year 2000 was with openly gay identity, which is to say, Adrian and I were like taking notes in a Google Doc simultaneously as we were watching this film last night. And um, very important to refer to Miss Congeniality as a film. On Michael Caine's sort of introduction, we were both having this reaction like, wait, are we supposed to read this guy as gay? Like, he's a stylist. He's clearly here for like the beauty makeover. But it wasn't made, I, to my estimation, and feel free to correct me if either of you read this differently, to my estimation, the story did not confirm his character to be gay until like the last 30 minutes of the movie when they're transitioning into the pageant itself. There's a moment when he's trying to, Michael Caine is trying to go backstage to warn Sandra Bullock about something. And one of the staffers starts being like, no men allowed. And then she's like, oh, it's you, Victor. And clearly the implication is that he is the exception to this like no man rule because he's, I'm making air quotes, not really a man. And then the funniest part of that scene to me was that he then, Michael Caine then turns to Benjamin Bratt to get him in too and says to the staffer, oh, he's with me, wink, wink. Thus, you know, implying to the staffer that they are romantically involved. Of course, in the 2000s lexicon, this makes Benjamin Bratt's straight character incredibly uncomfortable. He can't even possibly even entertain a joke about it that has a distinct professional purpose. Not even a joke. It's like it's important for him to be able to do his job. That's what I'm saying. There's a cover for That's him. where he draws the line. He's like, you cannot be... You can't be gay for America. You can be a you can be a woman for America, but you can't be gay for America. That me, it's about the reproductive futurity of the nation. Exactly. Yeah. Of right. course, you have to have heterosexual sex for Uncle Sam. But the last thing I was going to say is all of this orbits around a very early 2000s construct to me, which is the metrosexual. Do you remember the metrosexual and how no one talks about them anymore? Like Michael Caine, to me, seems like he's being coded for the first two acts of the movie as potentially metrosexual rather than homosexual. And then they let him tip over 
once he's established sort of trust and rapport with the audience. What do you both think? Do you agree with that reading? Do you have a different reading? I was reading him more clearly as explicitly coded as gay early on, you know. Interesting. Do you know, so, can you point to what yeah, makes you I'm, say that? I, yeah, because I wasn't thinking about that other than going like, that's pretty straight up for 2000 that they just like dropped that hairpin on on Michael Caine. And so... Mm-hmm. Well, he's British too. <laughs> there's all this stuff about class and yes. Europeanness and effeteness and dandyism that gets coded as exactly you know, the man who knows feminine style. It's just like it was just like so overcoded. I was just taking everything that he said as kind of like a on the down low, you know, not explicitly saying gay, but being readable as gay well and the the fact that he has to reproduce himself by other means right that he's a mentor figure because he is incapable of reproductive futurism he's been out of the game for a little while he feels he was forced out and grace becomes his greatest challenge his chance back into the role that he wanted for himself mentorship is often kind of a form of gay parenthood in in 90s movies too isn't it yeah yeah I, i i would agree with that, you know, like the non-biological kinship formations. The other thing I was thinking of re-watching Miss Congeniality last night was this moment in Sam Fader's film Disclosure, Trans Lives on Screen, which was on mm-hmm. Netflix last summer. And there's a bit where the actor Jen Richards is talking about representations of trans femininity in the documentary. And she says, you know, so it's like, what does like womanhood look like? It's like gay male stylists who are going to clubs, watching drag queens, taking their style and, you know, like dressing and styling heterosexual cisgender women in this style as a kind of natural womanhood that then trans women are accused of imitating. Mm-hmm. So just that circulation through trans and queer of what counts as like the visual style of femininity was something that I also saw operating in Miss Congeniality. And I hadn't really thought about that at the time when I first watched it, you know. And, you know, and honestly, it's like it's when brilliant. you asked me yesterday, you know, so like, so like chick flick, you know, let's talk about what it's like, uh, 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 Miss Congeniality. Mostly what I was remembering was that I just thought that Sandra Bullock was hilariously funny in that movie and that she mm-hmm. had some like interesting kind of ironic take on gender, you know, that it was like she was both like making fun of femininity And that by the end of the film, she had found like a different kind of sisterhood and that it was all rooted through the conventions of heterosexuality and gender convention, but Mm -hmm. that it had some sensibility in it that made me go like, oh, this is an interesting, this is an interesting take. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, 21 years on, I have to say that it kind of confirms the kind of performative reading so nicely also in the way that some of the signifiers like the movie goes out of its way in the first 10 to 15 minutes to just overload on kind of butch signifiers and one of them really struck me as both being ubiquitous around that time and totally illegible to me now which is the snort 
Senator Bullock has this tendency to kind of snort, uh, you know, and, and that's like, I remember that, like, I think that was a joke on Friends. It's a joke on Will and Grace. A, I don't recall anyone ever actually doing this. And B, I kind of think this is like, today we would use totally different tropes to sort of mark gender nonconformity in that regard. There was like a moment, there was a window in time when to snort like that could be read in this way. And that moment came and went. Yeah. Sneeze wrong and you're a lesbian. It's like a historically specific style. <laughs> I wonder, and this is a little bit of a tangent, I wonder, do either of you have any personal experience with pageant culture? Have you ever been to a beauty pageant at all? Any kind of pageant? Uh, no. I would never belong to a pageant that would have someone like me for a member. <laughs> My brother dated somebody in high school and early college who was like really seriously into pageant culture. Mm. She was a very nice, interesting person. I, you know, mm -hmm. She was somebody who had a very good voice, had a, you know, a lot of vocal training and was aspiring to be a professional singer and musician. And she was in pageant culture because she's like, this is like opportunity to be on stage and like get feedback mm -hmm. from an audience. And, you know, she thought as something that was really useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, I, neither I nor anybody I have been intimate with or who has been central to my life has been involved in pageant culture. Although, you know, like I've known a few drag queens and drag kings and people who do like drag king competitions. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. What, what, what am I saying? Yeah. Tons of them. Yeah. Other than the queer takes on pageant culture. Yeah. No. Which is very different, right? It's I thought about this when Laura asked the question, because, yeah, I know a lot of my former students are in drag queen and king contests. Ms. Leather International. Yeah. Mr. Leather. You know, like. I knew a hunky Jesus once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hunky yeah. Jesus, Dolores Park, Easter weekend, you know. like. Yeah. Well, here's one way in which it's different, right? Like one of the running gags in the movie is all about how it's a scholarship competition, right? Which is what Miss America will also constantly claim for themselves. And that always strikes me as so, so importantly different that like there's a myth about like also about reproduction, about not quite futurism, but about the future in some way in Miss America. It's like, well, this is a stage that you go through. Something that came up for me in the Vanessa Williams episodes that our colleagues and friends at You're Wrong About just did is that the idea was you don't become famous for having been a Miss America because you then become a wife and a mother. And so like you kind of fade from view. And of course, this is something that's totally different for, for drag culture, where this is not done with a view to the future. That is your job. That is your role. And you will occupy it for as long as you can. And that's something about the temporality of pageant culture that's very foreign to me because I'm used to, yeah, I'm used to drag culture. I don't mean to blow either of your minds too hard, but uh, for the last 47 minutes without talking, without knowing it, you have been speaking with the second runner-up in the 1996 Miss Preteen Minneapolis personality pageant. Holy <laughs> fucking shit. Adrian, I waited until this moment to drop this on you. So please go off about all you both know about pageant culture. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to drop that in there. I mean, okay, so there is Miss America and then, I was like, Miss Preteen. Miss Preteen Minneapolis, 19, I think it was 1996. Yeah, I think that was when I, I was in sixth grade. We got a little mailer in the USPS and my mom was like, this looks like it would be fun. And I was 12. So I was like, sure, what you say is fun is probably going to be fun. 
And I remember what's interesting about looking back at the experience, and I'm certainly not going to use this time to like defend beauty pageants writ large, but it has been an interesting part of my life as a feminist that I don't meet a lot of other people who self-identify as feminists or gender professors or anything like that who have any experience with pageant culture. But I do remember meeting girls for whom the scholarship money was absolutely the motivating factor. And girls in particular from like rural parts of Minnesota, where I'm from, where like there was a lot of scarcity of opportunity and that could have been like a real difference maker for them. But what's funniest to me looking back is the single greatest takeaway that I have from the experience is that there was like some sort of preparatory session we had to go to the day before the pageant itself. And they went around and did kind of like a training with us of like, this is where you stand. This is how you walk. And I distinctly remember the pageant director going around to every single girl in the room and practicing a handshake with us and like critiquing our handshake, you know, like, oh, your hand is too limp. Oh, that one's too firm. And there was something about learning to give a handshake that was like, genuinely valuable. I'm not saying I couldn't have learned that anywhere else or that, you know, pageants saved me. But I do think it's interesting that that memory kind of resists stereotype as I look back at the experience. And I remember how to give a handshake. Second runner up, the girl who won, she went on to win state and nationals and is now a romance novel, like cover model. Like she is the damsel on the cover of romance novels, which tells you a lot. (laughs) Good for her. Good for her. Probably has a killer handshake. You know? She probably does. Honestly, yeah. she was a bit of a killer, as I remember. In my mind, you'll always have been on toddlers at tiaras at this point. I'm just gonna. That's that's the version <laughs> of the story that I will take away from this. I mean, twelve is kind of a borderline, right? Like not quite a teenager, not quite a child. So I don't really fit that neatly into either category. That was the one was the only one I ever did. She now I went mean, to Deleuze and Guattari and like the becoming girl, you know, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. It's like, what's the line of flight that we can go on here that's like trying to like elude capture by the state apparatus? Ooh. Well, Adrian, you were talking about how Miss Congeniality is kind of a story of second adolescence. And I think mm-hmm. that's a brilliant reading. I mean, there's a point at which Michael Kane calls Sandra Bullock's character a woman without a discernible smidgen of estrogen, itself a very transphobic comment. The idea of the second adolescence is like such the cliche of trans yeah. life, right? You yeah. Know, like, that's the trans temporality, the queer temporality of like life, chrononormative, heteronormative time being scrambled by Mm-hmm. embodied and identitarian difference mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. we totally saw that at work in miscongeniality. Yeah. well and when he makes that assertion i feel like the implication is by the end she has gained some estrogen by virtue of his training <laughs> gay proximity yeah it's it's a little confusing <laughs> i do think that the question of, of adolescence is a really important one there i mean this is something that my own research is about these days about how the proximity to gay men in the 90s and early 2000s in general tended to be a signifier for a kind of retarded kind of adulthood for prolonged adolescence, right? The fag hag, right? Like having a gay best friend meant that you hadn't met Matthew McConaughey yet. It meant that you right. hadn't sort of hadn't grown up the way you're supposed to. It was a placeholder. Well, or a sign that you feared genuine commitment, that you feared, you know, the trappings of thoroughly gendered adulthood. Mm-hmm. If we want to read that sense of, quote unquote, arrested development, the halt of the normative life narrative, it's like, hello, 
Freud, you know, three essays on theory of sexuality yep. and perversion, like the thing that like takes you away from the yeah. heteronormative life course. It's like, well, it's like you can have an acceptable standard deviation as long as it comes back That's at right. the end to the, you That's know, right. to the kiss. But what I thought made this congeniality clear in that sense is that when we get the, you know, Benjamin Bratt, Sandra Bullock kiss at the end, that seems to be like taking all of Sandra Bullock's gender non-normativity back to the point of heterosexuality to, you know, standard Freud narrative there that at the end, when it like it flips it and makes the real resolution, not the heterosexual climax, but the feminist sisterhood yeah, you know, that's right. At the end, it's like it queers the heterosexual yeah. Yeah. ending by placing woman-woman relationships as the true emotional culmination of the story. That's and right. to have that script written by a gay man, it's like we're right back to Butler and Sedgwick again, right? Yeah, it's the kind of nobody's perfect moment of this film. Wow. Exactly. Well, Susan, what else are you working on right now other than rewatching 3 p.m. TBS films? <laughs> Oh my goodness. I mean, my official project right now, I have a book under contract to a commercial publisher that is, they were imagining it as, as they called it, the, and the band played on for trans history, you know, like what is like the big mass audience book that basically says trans people, you're all over the place right now. Where did you come from? And it's like, I can tell you that story. So I'm trying to make it a, a book that actually has intellectual substance it's not pop history but that you know that it is in fact a general audience yet academically grounded history of gender in north america from colonization through the present so that Mm. look at the the persistent presence of trans like figures that you can find under every rock you want to turn over uh, and the history of how gender as a social system changed over you know over centuries and you know why trans issues are such a hot button issue right Mm -hmm. now the argument has something to do with like in the present in this post-truth society that we live in where rampant with conspiracy theories and everybody's information ecologies are so completely you know channeled into you know different social media worlds and news outlets that the idea of the trans person as touchstone for epistemological and ontological struggle just like it becomes the trans figure becomes the figure through which these reality constructions duke it out with each other and so to, to think about that is like why in the present trans issues are so polarized, weaponized, you know, inflamed, but then to make the argument that, well, this has actually always been the case. Trans folks in the present are a body that is fought over because of these different realities, you know, like there's an imaginary warfare that's going mm-hmm. on. And you ask, when did that emerge? It's kind of like, well, that's like, the same story of like racial imaginaries fitting into propping up the slave system. There's like Sylvia Winter's ideas on, you know, biocentrism coming out of the transatlantic slave economies. Mm -hmm. There's the conflict between European colonizers and indigenous worldviews and genocidal practices of literally imposing one reality onto another reality. And so to basically say 
from colonization through the present, the trans figure has been a site for the social construction of reality. Right. Mm. You know, yeah. and that it is not unrelated to histories of settlements, colonization, enslavements, liberatory social movements, biopolitical projects, you know. And so the project is to be able to say all of that in a way that could get like quoted in the New Yorker and right. not, you know, Chronicle of Higher Education. Isn't that always the project? Right. And so, you know, it's been a long project. You know, it's like it's taken me far longer than I envisioned. In some ways, I keep thinking about that quip that gets attributed to Hemingway of like, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. You know, like there's a way that it's like, I feel like if I was just writing this as an academic book, I would have done it because it's right. like you could just use the jargon and the shorthand and you can cite, it's like a so-and-so says blah, and then you do it. But it's like if you're talking to an audience that doesn't know the scholarly argument, yeah. you've got to explain it in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mm-hmm. think of writing the book is more like teaching, you know, it's like, yeah. except instead of like teaching 20 people in a seminar, I'm teaching like, you know, 200,000 people. I'm also doing a lot of media. I saw you recently. I believe it was at, no, it was at HBO. Oh, The Lady and the Dale. Lady and the Dale, exactly. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so like, I love doing, I love doing work yeah. like that, you know, and uh, because I do have a background in filmmaking, in some ways I feel like that was the best investment I ever made in my career was like, you know, learning how to make film, film. tell a film nice. about like radical trans resistance to police violence, you know, but it's like, it both gave me a set of skills and it gave me a certain profile among people who make media where it's like, I kind of became the, Oh, we're making a movie that's got trans in it. We should talk to Susan. And so it was my entree into a film world that I never would have moved into. And I, I, I love it. It's like, I love doing commercial media. I mean, I like my, you know, my avant-garde underground kinds of stuff too. And the high art, end of things but that to me is like interesting um but it's like to do commercial media it's like that same kind of problem of figuring out how do you take what you know and tell it in a way that reaches an audience and like there's a different skill set involved in that but the audiences that you can reach are amazing absolutely and to not think of it as just kind of like a propaganda vehicle but to think of it as like okay like what's in this story that we're trying to tell that we could bring out an issue in it. Like, for example, in The Lady in the Dale, which was ostensibly about Liz Carmichael, a trans woman who, I'll just say, committed fraud in the 1970s of like promoting a product that might or might not have existed. <laughs> um, so it was kind of like a true crime story. But then the way the directors and producers shape the story, it becomes really clear that part of the the story was as the public is trying to decide, is this car that's being marketed, the Dale, you know, as a solution to the energy crisis in 1974, is it real or is it fake? That that real versus fake question mapped onto Liz Carmichael. It's like, well, is she really a woman or is she really right. a man? And so the trans question becomes conflated with the fraud question. And then in the final episode of the series, there's a little segment on the spectacularization and exploitation of trans stories in the media by people who have a kind of prurient interest in transness. Right. And it's like to be able to work with mainstream 
media makers on a platform like HBO Max and to get like millions of viewers and to be able to like teach a little lesson about trans media representation. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's great. You know, just like, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do that five days a week. Beautiful. Yeah, and I, I should say that as our listeners wait for your book to come out, one way they might think about the question you've raised about how settler colonialism and gender kind of intersect in the American story is figure out why the Alamo figures so prominently in miscongeniality. There is something there is something going on there. And maybe that, that would be for another <laughs> hour, but there is something. That was the best segue you've ever done, Adrian. That was masterful. <laughs> But there's something there. And- Since they don't ever comment on it, I was thinking it's like, damn, it's like City of San Antonio must have given some mad tax breaks right? for like movie yes. you know, production. Whew. I agree. Thank you, Susan. This was such a pleasure to talk about this triumph of cinema with such an august writer and scholar. It was fun. Yeah, hope to cross paths again. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante-Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.